All right, please grab your Bibles, open up to Revelation 15. We're going to cover two chapters today, so we're going to jump in without much introduction. Uh, Revelation 15. Uh, but if you're just joining us, um, you know, we've been studying the book of Revelation for a while now, and Revelation is a book primarily about what happens when Jesus returns. And we're at the point in the book where we have clearly seen what the problem is with the world. The problem with the world is that there are evil people who do evil things. And behind those people, there are forces of evil, like Satan, manipulating and inspiring people to do evil. That's the problem with the world. It's a big problem. And now we begin the section, starting with chapter 15 and going all the way through chapter 20, where God gives his solution to that problem where he faces evil head-on and fully and finally destroys it. It's like all this time, God has been showing us this old, mold-infested, termite-infested house. And now he's bringing in the backhoe, he's tearing it down so that he can build a new, perfect house of our dreams. And so now in chapter 15 and 16, which we cover today, we've got the beginning of the end. God has shown us the problem, and now he says enough is enough, and he pours out his wrath on a wicked world. So chapter 15 and 16, I'm going to read the whole thing for us in one swoop, and then zoom in on what I think the main issue is in these two chapters. So follow along as I read. Revelation 15, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Chapter 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. 
And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Wow. There's a lot, a lot of issues that we would love to spend time on here. Like the other passages of symbolic judgment, we would love to know what are all these things symbols of? What's going on with each of these plagues? What in the world with these demonic frogs? What, Armageddon, what, what's that all about? Where is that? Okay. Those, are, those are good questions, and as is our practice here, if you have specific questions that I don't answer today, just go ahead and write them down on those green sheets. There's sheets by the box in the back. Put them in the question box. I'll try to answer them. Okay. But there's one big issue that jumped out to me as I studied this passage. This passage is all about the wrath of God. Right? Bowl after terrible bowl of the wrath of God is poured out in judgment on the world. And here's what jumped out to me. As God pours out his wrath on the world, all the good guys are rejoicing. Do you see that? In chapter 15, the saints who are in heaven are singing. In chapter 3, they're singing. Or sorry, in verse 3. Great and amazing your deeds, O Lord God, just and true are your ways. And then in chapter 16, in verse 5, uh, there's this break, and the angel starts to sing, Just are you, Holy One. You know, praise God. They're getting what they deserve. So this chapter is all about the terrible wrath of God being poured out in judgment on the world, and the good guys are excited. And here's what I think the issue is. That is generally not how we respond to hearing about the wrath of God. My guess is, as I read through this passage, you had some feelings as I was reading it. You might have felt terrified. You might have felt confused. 
You may even have felt a little embarrassed. Why are we reading this passage? Aren't there nicer passages we could be reading? I doubt, though, that we were excited, overflowing with joy because the wrath of God was poured out on the world. But here's the thing, we should be. Because when you read this passage, the good guys are all praising God. They're all excited. They're all joyful. And that's a big issue, I think. That's a bigger issue, I think, more worthy of us spending our time on this morning than trying to figure out who are these demon frogs, where's Armageddon. You can ask those questions. But the key issue today is why are they singing praises for the judgments of God being poured out on the earth while we wish that these chapters weren't in the Bible? And I think the answer boils down to this, that we're not excited about the wrath of God because we have believed lies about the wrath of God instead of the truth. And my contention is that if we understood the truth about the wrath of God, we would be singing too and rejoicing at the goodness of his wrath. So that's my task this morning is, first of all, to identify two lies that we believe about the wrath of God. And then through this passage, give us five biblical truths about the goodness of his wrath. So let's start at the beginning. The first lie that you may have believed about the wrath of God is that a God of wrath is a bloodthirsty monster. That would be the lie. A God of wrath, a God who would do something like this, must be a bloodthirsty monster. Some people read this passage or ones like it. In the Old Testament, the story of the flood, God wiping out the entire human race except for one family. Or the story of the conquest of Canaan where God says to Joshua and the Israelites, as you enter the promised land, I want you to kill everyone, man, woman, and child. People read these passages and they say, a God who would say something like that or do something like that must be a bloodthirsty monster. Richard Dawkins is a prominent atheist author. He summarizes this view well. He says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. According to this view, a God of wrath must be, by definition, a monster. Anyone who would do such violent things or command such violent things must be a monster, like an abusive father who just lashes out at anyone who annoys him. Or maybe even worse, like a sadist who takes pleasure in inflicting pain. But Whatever it is, the bottom line in this view is that there's something wrong with God. No good being would ever do anything like this. These outbursts of wrath prove that he's a bloodthirsty monster. It's a common argument. Many people make it. Many people believe it. And of those who believe it, there's a couple responses. There's first the atheist response that says, the Bible teaches God is wrathful, therefore God's a bloodthirsty monster, therefore I want nothing to do with this God. But there's another response Those who say the Bible teaches God is wrathful, which, if it's true, means that God's a bloodthirsty monster. But 
The Bible also has parts that talk about him being love and kind and, and wonderful. And so I'm just going to believe those parts of the Bible and not the parts that talk about his wrath. Which leads to the second lie, that a God of love can't be a God of wrath. That a God of love can't be a God of wrath. That's the view that's not held by atheists, but by Christians, people who know that God is love, who've experienced his love, who see Jesus dying on the cross for his enemies and say, how could the one who died for his enemies destroy his enemies? How could the one who say, turn the other cheek, unleash these horrible plagues on mankind? Okay, and for those people, and maybe you're one of them, These two things seem absolutely incompatible. A God who is love can't be a God of wrath. That's like saying the sun is the source of darkness or drinking water makes me thirsty. A God of love can't be a God of wrath. So when those who hold this view read passages like today's, they squirm, and maybe you squirmed a little bit today. Because you say, this doesn't sound like the God I know. The God I know is a God of love. And so I'm just going to stick to the bits of the Bible that I like. I'm going to stick to the parts that talk about his love and ignore all this wrath business because my God would never do anything like this. That's what some people say. Say God of love can't show wrath. If he did, he'd be a monster. But my job for you today and every day is to tell you what the Bible says. So let's do that. This is what people say. But what does the Bible say? There's a lot of truth about God's wrath in this passage. The first thing we have to see is that God is full of wrath. It's the first truth you have to see. God is full of wrath. The easiest bubble to burst is the one that says God is all love and never wrathful. We read a few verses. Chapter 15, verse 1. I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, and with them the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Verse 7. One of the four living creatures came to the seven angels, seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. Chapter 16, verse 1. Go and pour out on earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Chapter 16, verse 19. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And those are just the verses where the phrase wrath of God is specifically mentioned. The whole chapter is about the wrath of God being poured out on the earth. It's unescapable that God shows wrath. And it's no good playing the old game of, well, that's the Old Testament God. Right? Some people divide up the Bible you know, pretty harshly between Old Testament and New Testament and say, the God in the Old Testament is, is murderous and vindictive and bloodthirsty, but then Jesus came and, I don't know, God wised up, and now he's loving and kind and merciful. But, of course, last time I checked, Revelation was in the New Testament. Right? And it's just a fallacy. I mean, you read the Old Testament, there's thousands of examples of the love and mercy and grace of God in the Old Testament. And there are countless examples in the New Testament of God having wrath and judgment. God is consistent throughout Scripture. 
The Bible doesn't have any trouble holding the love of God and the wrath of God together. That's our problem. But it's clear that God is full of wrath. So that's the first true idea. Let's build on this bit by bit. God is full of wrath. Why is God full of wrath? What has him so angry? The answer here is very clear as well. God is full of wrath towards sin. God is full of wrath because the world is full of sin. People like Richard Dawkins, the the man I quoted earlier, they would have you believe that God's wrath is unpredictable, that God's wrath is inappropriate, that he is someone with anger management issues who just likes to fly off the handle at the slightest provocation or terrorize people just because he's bored. Is that the picture that we get in this passage? Of, an, of a God whose wrath is arbitrary and unprovoked? Now look, look at the songs. In chapter 15, verse 3, they say, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways. In chapter 16, verse 5, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Why are they praising God? They're praising God for his justice. They're praising God because he's just and true. God is a just judge. He's doing what is right and good. His wrath is not arbitrary, it's judicial. He's not a bloodthirsty monster. He's the perfect embodiment of justice. He doesn't simply show wrath because he has anger issues. He's full of wrath because the world is full of sin. The world is full of people who are constantly hurting one another, doing evil. And ultimately, God's the one responsible for making sure that those who do wrong receive what they deserve. That's what he's doing. His wrath is poured out because we deserve it. I'm sure you know, in recent weeks, we had two very high-profile police shootings. In Dallas, there was a shooter who killed five police officers before he was killed. And in Baton Rouge, there was a shooter who killed three police officers before he was killed. But in both cases, the shootings ended when the police shot the shooters, right? And they killed the shooter. Now, is there any reasonable person who is accusing those police officers of being bloodthirsty monsters? No. Why not? Because they weren't just walking around randomly killing people. They killed the shooters because the shooters were walking around killing people. And they were going to kill more people if they weren't stopped. In each case, it was simply justice. The murderers got what they deserved. And that is the picture of God here and throughout Scripture. There is a bloodthirsty monster. He's Satan. That's why he's called the dragon. He's the one who goes around just killing people for killing's sake. He's the one who destroys just for the sake of destroying. He's the one who's the bad guy. And God is the hero. God is the one who steps up to intervene and stop Satan from continuing his evil. God is the one who steps in to stop Satan from influencing others to do evil. 
God is full of wrath because the world is full of sin and someone has to do something. And so God intervenes. Let's keep building. Let's keep, keep cooking. I want you to see that this is not in conflict with his love. This flows out of his love. So the third idea, God is full of wrath towards sin because of his love. Not in spite of his love, because of his love. I don't want you to get the idea, sometimes God's a nice guy, and then every once in a while he has to get mean to deal with bad guys. Okay? I don't want you to have the idea that sometimes God is loving and sometimes he's wrathful, like he has a split personality, and you never know which side you're going to get. Every time we try to set wrath against love, it's just a huge mistake. God's wrath is not opposed to his love. God's wrath is his love in action. God's wrath is his love to defend his people, to take out the bad guys, because he loves them. That's what God's wrath is about. That's really what all anger is. Anger is a result of love. I've been really helped by a definition from Tim Keller. Um, He said, anger is the energy for defense of something you love when it is threatened. Anger is the energy for defense of something you love when it's threatened. So think about that. Does that fit your anger? Well, does that kind of capture it? Anger, when you feel anger, when you feel wrath, it's because something you love is being threatened and you have a desire to protect it. Okay, it could be good or bad. Okay, but just think about it. Let's say you have an old bike you're getting ready to throw away. It's sitting in the garage. And the kid starts messing around with it. And you know if they keep doing what they're doing, they're going to break that bike. Okay, do you get angry? No. Because you're going to throw the bike away anyway. You don't love it. You don't care about it. You just say, hey, get off the bike. But let's say it's a new bike that you just bought at great expense. And the same thing happens. Your, your kid's messing around with it. If they keep doing what they're doing, they're probably going to break it. How do you respond now? If you're anything like me, you get crazy angry. Why? Because you love that bike. And the anger wells up inside of you so that you take action to protect the thing that you love. That's all anger is. It can be good or bad, depending on whether the thing you love is good or bad. Another example, if you selfishly love your own free time, and your kids come up and, and start asking to play with you and to, to, to encroach upon your free time, you might yell at them. Conversely, if you dearly love your kids and someone threatens your kids, you will get angry. And that anger will motivate you to protect and defend the children whom you love. That's what anger is. Anger is uh, love in action. It's the energy to defend the things that you love when they're threatened. Okay, so what does God love? God loves the world, right? God loves the whole world. He loves every single person in the world. But every day, every single person in the world is being sinned against by someone. People are being oppressed by bad governments. People are being exploited by unethical businesses. Spouses are being cheated on. Kids are being neglected. You know, we're breaking promises. We're hurting one another with our words. There's selfishness and lust and greed and all these things. 
And God sees it. He sees it all. Every single day, he sees 7.4 billion people whom he loves being threatened by one another. No wonder he's angry. He's full of wrath because the world is full of sin. And he is full of love for his people. And so God needs to act to deliver us from evil. That's why his people are singing when his wrath finally comes. Because it shows our Father loves us enough to act. He has finally and fully acted in his wrath to destroy evil once and for all. God's wrath is not opposed to his love. It is his love in action. He is full of wrath because he's full of love. Having said that, you have to see, though, that even though God's wrath is an expression of his love, it's not on the same level as this love. This is the fourth big idea. God's wrath has an end. It has an end. As long as there's evil in this world threatening the people he loves, God will show his love by bringing wrath against evil. But one day there will be no more evil. And God will be able to put away his wrath because it won't be necessary anymore. I don't know if you've thought about this, but in the new heavens and the new earth, and we'll get there in a few chapters in Revelation, in the new heavens and new earth, there won't be police officers. There won't be lawyers. And that's not a lawyer joke. I'm not saying there's no lawyers in heaven. I'm just saying they're going to have to get a new job, right? They won't be necessary. There's no evil. And God's not going to have to show his wrath anymore. He's not going to have to show his love through his wrath because there will be no evil to deal with. That's why Scripture says quite clearly that God is love. But it never says God is wrath. God shows wrath. And it is consistent with his character to show his love through wrath. But it's not fundamental to who he is. It's not something he's always been doing or that he always will do. It's something he must do now because evil exists. His love is something he has always done, and he always will do because that's who he is. Love is greater than wrath. So love and wrath are not opposites, but they're not equals. Love is greater. And that brings us to the best and final truth about the wrath of God. That while it is a good and wonderful thing for God to show his love by pouring out wrath on sin, he much prefers to show his love by pouring out mercy on sinners. The fifth point is that God's wrath is only felt by those who reject his mercy. At this point, I hope you're feeling the tension pretty strongly. That God loves everyone, but because he loves everyone, he's angry at everyone. Right? God loves everyone, but we're hurting one another. You know, he, he, he's going to pour out his wrath on sin, but we're the sinners. You know, on one hand, we're the people he wants to protect. On the other hand, we're the people he has to protect others from. So how, how do we do this? You know, we all deserve the wrath of God because we've all sinned. 
but God wants to save us all because he loves us. So how can God pour out his wrath on sin while still having mercy on sinners? How can he be just and merciful at the same time? All right, this is the part, when you get it, where you really start to sing. The answer is the gospel. That God can be merciful to sinners because he's already poured out his wrath on Jesus. So anyone who puts his or her faith in Jesus is forgiven of sins and will not experience the wrath of God because it's already fallen on Jesus, the Lamb. Did you notice in verse 3 of chapter 15? It's kind of weird mention of Moses. It says, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. What's that about? Where did Moses come from? Okay, now this, this is just a shorthand way of bringing in the whole Old Testament. And this is a way of saying this stuff that we're celebrating now, it's not new. This is how God has always worked. This is the consistent lesson he's been teaching us throughout history of how salvation happens. Way back in the book of Exodus, the second book in your Bibles, the people of Israel were in slavery. And God was angry. He was angry with Egypt. He was angry with their Pharaoh because they had enslaved the people whom he loved. And so God through Moses, demanded that Pharaoh let his people go, but Pharaoh refused. He did not repent. And so God poured out wrath on Egypt. You tell me if this sounds familiar. He poured out his plagues. He sent painful sores on the people. He turned water to blood. He sent hail and frogs. He cast the nation into darkness. There was a series of nine terrible plagues, but still Pharaoh did not repent. So God sent one more plague. The firstborn son in every household would be killed. From Pharaoh's household all the way down to the lowest slave, even of the livestock, the firstborn male would die. That night, everyone would experience the wrath of God. Now surprisingly, God said this would happen to the Israelites too. The people whom he loved. He warned them, this will happen to you too. Why would that happen to them? I thought they were the good guys. It's because really there are no good guys. Everyone sinned. Everyone stands under the wrath of God, the Israelites and Egyptians alike. But God provided a way of mercy. He provided a way for them to escape the wrath of God. Many of you know how, how, how they got out, right? God said to them, I want you to gather in your house and I want you to kill a lamb. I want you to take the blood of that lamb and put it over the doorpost of the house. And then, when the angel of the Lord comes tonight, if he sees the blood of the lamb, he will pass over the house and will not bring the wrath of God to that house. Why? Because the lamb took the wrath of God. The lamb died instead of the child. The lamb was a substitute. This is the deliverance that they experienced under Moses. This is a picture of the deliverance that we all experience from Christ. We deserve these plagues. We deserve the wrath of God to be poured out on us, but it isn't. Why? Because it's already been poured out on the Lamb. Jesus is the Lamb. Jesus is the sacrifice who took the wrath of God so that we might live. 
He's the one who died so that we can be forgiven. This is why they're singing the song of Moses and the Lamb. Because Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has taken away the sins of the world. You see, God's wrath is an expression of his love. And that's a good thing. But the greatest expression of his love is found in the cross, where God, in a sense, pours his wrath on himself so that we could be forgiven. And the question is, if, if that's true, if God is so merciful that he delights to forgive those that he should be punishing, why is anyone punished? If God, he brings it right back, if God is so loving, why pour his wrath out on anyone? The answer is clear in our passage. It's because some people just don't repent. Chapter 16, verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. Its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. There are some people, as hard as it may be to believe, who refuse to repent. No matter how many second chances God gives, how many warnings, no matter how many times they hear the free offer of forgiveness in Jesus Christ, they refuse to repent. So what do you do with those people? At some point, God has to draw the line and say, this has gone on long enough. You have rejected offer after offer of mercy. All that's left is judgment. And so, because they refuse his mercy, all that is left is the wrath of God. I said at the beginning, I wanted to explain what the Bible says about God's wrath well enough. That you're no longer troubled by it but instead want to join in the songs of the Christians and the angels in heaven, praising God for the goodness of his wrath. I hope we've moved the needle on that at least a little bit today. I hope you see that God is not the bloodthirsty monster that some make him out to be. Yes, he's full of wrath because the world is full of sin and God is full of love. And so he must act to protect people from sin. But even then, wrath takes a back seat. Love and wrath are not opposites, but they're not equals. Love is greater than wrath. And what God loves more than anything is to show his mercy to the people who deserve his wrath. Jesus has taken the wrath of God on himself so that you and me can be forgiven. And it's only those, only those who refuse the mercy of God who experience his wrath. So the application today, repent and rejoice. Repent and rejoice. Rejoice in the goodness of the wrath of God. Let's pray. Father, this would be a terrifying sermon and a terrifying passage if the cross did not exist. 
Thank you for salvation. Thank you for Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who died in my place to take the punishment that I deserve. And thank you for your transforming grace that every day makes me a little bit more like Jesus, doing a little bit less evil to my brothers and sisters. And I pray that you would work in us, Father. Any of us here that you're calling to repentance, may we respond with repentance, receiving the gift of salvation. And would you change us, Lord? Change us to be like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.